The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Melissa Lee, and today for Scott Wapner, markets rallying today after yesterday's massive reversal. Did stocks hit their lows? And is it time to start buying many of these beaten down names? We'll debate that and much more with our investment committee today. Liz Young, Amy Raskin, Steve Weiss, and John Nigerian, co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Let's get a check on the markets at this hour. The Dow is rallying today on track for its best day of the year. The S&P 500 trying to break a three-day losing streak. We are at session highs uh, virtually here on the S&P 500. 43.74 is our level, up by 2%. The Nasdaq is up by 1.4%. And take a check on the 10-year yield, creeping back up towards 2%. One nine eight is where we stand right now. Let's get straight to the market action and trade this. Liz Young, um, on yesterday's show, I asked the team that we had in place whether we would look back on that day and say that was the bottom, particularly for a lot of beaten down tech stocks. Now having the benefit of an extra 24 hours, Liz, what do you say? I wish I had the benefit of another 24 months to look back on this, <laughs> but... Uh, you know, first of all, I'll never call a bottom. I think that that's a really easy way to make a mistake. Um, I do think that in the short term, we probably flushed enough. And this is going to be a year where the anticipation of events is worse than the actual event itself, at least in the market. So we had this lead up to all of the conflict in Russia and Ukraine, and the anticipation of it was really fear inducing. The same way that we've had this lead up into a tightening cycle, the anticipation has been very fear inducing. So I think we've flushed enough for now. But here's the thing, even if we de-escalate, even if some of that conflict de-escalates and we've gotten past the most fearful pieces of it, it's not like we're going back to some Hakuna Matata environment where there's no problems, no worries, no headwinds, right? We're still going back to an environment where we're waiting for a Fed meeting on March 16th, we're waiting for the first hike, and we're waiting for a period when liquidity is coming out of the market. So I think that this is a year where the punches are gonna just keep getting thrown. That doesn't mean that it's going to be a huge bear market, doesn't mean we're gonna end negative, but it's going to be a slog through this. Yeah, we still got a lot of Fed. We got the meeting, as Liz had mentioned. We got Jerome Powell next week, Steve Weiss. But still, you felt comfortable enough to take off your hedges. Yeah, so I took half off before the show and then half off when it was undeniable that I was going to be wrong short term. And, uh, you know, still have a ton of cash, though. So it's, it's not like I'm fully exposed to the market. You know, I've got beta in the portfolio, so it helps me perform. But my view from yesterday hasn't changed by the market movement today or yesterday. Uh, it, it's just, again, risk management on what is obviously a face-ripping rally, as, uh, as my friend John Nigerian would likely say. Look, 
the issues are still there. My scenario still is there, which is we're in a rising rate environment with inflation stubbornly high. And actually, that was reaffirmed today in what we saw coming out in the data releases. And then you still have the specter of China. Now, China maybe doesn't happen for a week, maybe it doesn't happen two weeks, maybe it's three weeks, maybe it doesn't happen. But the talk will be there. But more importantly than that, the only way to get this inflation down is consecutive rate increases. It's not going to go down on its own. It's not going down with 25 or 50 bips. And what that does, essentially, it slows the economy. So I still believe that in this environment, we need to trade at a slight discount to the market, or at least at an historic market multiple, not where we are right now. Some stocks have more than discounted lots of that. I own some of those. I own some that are still discounting it, unfortunately. But uh, I just think it's completely bottoms up. And there's going to be, as Liz said, there's going to be painful days and there's going to be, you know, going to be days of elation. And uh, the risk reward just hasn't changed. We're in a trading range and I'd rather protect my downside than focus on trying to grab for some upside, which I think will be fleeting. Yeah. Um, we're at session highs, by the way, on the S&P 500 officially right now. John Najarian, Tom Lee of Fundstrat says it was a, a buy invasion sort of day yesterday and it's continuing today. And so do you do you think that this continues? Did we did the pendulum swing too far in one direction in trying to correct some of the over, overvaluation in the market? Well, Mel, um, Tom Lee and I were both on stage out here in Vegas at the same time yesterday. Uh, I had the, the lead and then Tom made a great call during live market trading where he said just what you said, um, that uh, if, if that wasn't the bottom, we were so close to it that it really doesn't matter. I'm paraphrasing. But um, what, what I think, Mel, is that beyond that, um, the uh, historical context for something like this, the nearest one that I could find, of course, is 2016 election. We were down 800 points on election night, and we finished higher by several hundred points. I'm talking Dow points right now. Um, and that was a you know, just a face ripper, to, to use Steve's term that he attributed to me, a face ripper rally. Same thing here. People were over uh, confident of their short positions and those that did not uh, take those positions uh, and uh, cash out of those. Uh, that face ripping rally was because there were too many shorts in the market melt, just like at market tops when there are too many longs and it's easy to push that market over. So as far as going forward, I would, again, go, going back to that historical context, though, we were uh, an 18,000-point Dow back in 2016 when we had that 800-point drop and then the subsequent rally. This time, we're nearly double that, and we only saw half as much dip, even though it's the same 800 points in the Dow. It's only half as much because the Dow is, you know, over 30,000. Um, so to me, Mel, that says that Liz Young might not be wrong, that uh, there, is some, there could be some more bumps in the road here. Right now, however, people that poured back into tech in particular, I mean, you know, I was lucky in Square. I was lucky in Palo Alto Networks. I've talked about both recently on the show um, for, you know, just some of those, in the case of Palo Alto, great earnings in the case of Square. Um, pretty good earnings, and also just the stock had been, you know, 68% off of its highs, uh, just taken apart. So I think people were doing some aggressive shopping. I applaud them for that. Uh, but I would say that in a war scenario, 
uh, we need to get past war before we can really see much more appreciation in the market. So I really? would be aggressively selling calls. I would be aggressively selling calls into this. Okay, uh, on I mean, these rallies, Mel. I, I said really only because the market is a forward discounting mechanism. Mm-hmm. And so you would think that you, you don't need to see the end or close to the end in order to have priced it all in. Amy, where do you stand on where where we are and whether or not some of these names? I mean, Dr. J mentioned Block, formerly known as Square. Um, the guidance was good. It was much better than investors had feared. It's an example, I think, a poster child of one of these high valuation names where people were so worried that too much was priced in. They were able to deliver, you know, good enough. And here we are up more than 20 percent in a single day. Yeah, but look at where we came from. I I tend to agree with Liz and Steve. I think the market is slightly overvalued for the environment that we're in right now. I still think inflation and the Fed is our big concerns that we have to get through. Um, Undoubtedly, there will be some great buying opportunities right now, and we're we're aggressively looking for them. Um, There are definitely cases where the baby's being thrown out with the bathwater and stocks that are down 80 percent. Um, you know, will be long-term very good investment opportunities. But in general, we think the market still has, a, you know, a tough year ahead, still has some correction in front of it. Um, today, Days like today feel really good. It feels like, you know, we're off to the races. But, um, but unfortunately, we don't think we're there yet. All right. Let's uh, get to Brian Belsky, the BMO chief investment strategist. Brian, great to have you with us. You heard a lot of our panelists who think that may- maybe the past couple of days had fake um, here. So I'm wondering what your take is on what has been to use. I don't think this term has been used this many times in, in you know, a handful of minutes, a face ripping rally that we've been seeing. <laughs> <laughs> well, Melissa, it's just wonderful to see you again. Thank you so much uh, for having us. When you were speaking and the other panels were speaking, I hearken back to the late 1990s and early 2000s when people were talking about buy the dip, buy the dip. I think the buy the dip craze that has really occurred um, uh, during this market phase uh, has been unbelievable. It's been epic. And actually, I think it's been more powerful than what we saw uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, especially given the fact that that was much more concentrated in in the tech stocks. But I think trying to call bottoms are difficult, as Liz said. I also think um, that this, this rally is doubted by a lot of people. And I like that, being bullish. I like to go the other way. Uh, and if you, t- if, you, if you take a look at what the market is dealing with, and we wrote about this uh, uh, this week, we like to deal in markets with actualities. Uh, and I think the biggest unknown is how the Fed is going to operate from here and when inflation peaks. And the market does not like this. And that's why you've seen so much volatility. The market did what it usually does historically when we have geopolitical events. And so we finally got our 10% correction, Melissa. We've, said, we've seen 29 corrections since 1970. Only seven of them turned into bear markets. Uh, and they usually last around 110 days. Uh, and if you take a look at when we've come out from these 10% corrections, uh, we're up 27% over the next 12 months. Those are just numbers. Uh, and again, it's our call that we're not seeing a bear market. Correction, yes, obviously we've had a correction. I believe that fundamentals do not constitute a bear market or recession in 2022. Liz, you got a question for Brian. I do. Hi, Brian. So I agree with you that we're not headed for a meaningful bear market, meaning more than 20 percent or even 30 percent, something like that. Usually that takes a recession to get us there. 
But when you say you're bullish, can you define bullish for me? And then what sectors are leading that bull as you look forward to the end of the year? Great question. Over the last couple of weeks and uh, for, for most of 2022, Liz, we've received a lot of negative, uh, let's call it messages that were high in the street in terms of 5300 on the S&P 500 at $245 earnings. Uh, that's based on a dividend discount model that we've used as strategists for as a, as a publishing strategist since 1998, and I've been in the business 32 years, so the dividend discount model that we've used with a very, very I think, defensive and conservative risk premium, uh, I think that we get there. Now, the second half of the year, Liz, I think is going to be surprising with respect to earnings growth. I don't think it's as easy as buying value only or buying growth only. I think what we've seen the last few days is a rental in tech. I'd be a little worried about the high high flying tech, the high multiple tech here. And I do agree that you may want to take a little off the table there. Instead, you should be buying consumer staples type tech like Apple, Microsoft, those types of names. But we love over the next 12 to 18 months, financials, industrials, materials, and consumer discretionary. Over the next three to five years, if anybody cares about three to five year calls, we're overweight technology and, con and communication services in our small mid cap portfolios. Amy, you got a question? Sure. Hi, Brian. It's great to see you again. It's been a long time. But my yeah. question is, do you think we're, and I might have gathered this just from your last comment, but are we in an inflationary environment or still in a disinflationary environment? And does that matter? Because the numbers that you quoted are, are certainly impressive and would make somebody feel a lot better. But do they hold up in inflationary environments? It's a great question. And as you know uh, from doing this a long time in our prior discussions, uh, when I used to come in and meet and see you uh, as a client, was that if you take a look at stocks in an inflationary, let's call it rising rate environment, they do quite well because the economy is improving. And that's why you want to be more cyclically bent, Amy. But I think the key thing is this whole notion of, of deflation. We don't want deflation. We want disinflation. And I think what people are missing is onshoring is going to be very disinflationary. I, I, I firmly believe that. As we move things away from being offshore onto onshore, it's going to mean that you want industrial uh, 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 positions in your portfolio, but you also want materials, but you also want big cap tech because that's what makes things disinflationary. So I do think that if you take a look in, in terms of perspective, the average 10-year average treasury since the great financial crisis is 220 to 2.2%, I think it's going to take a while for us to get there as this transition to normalcy in terms of interest rates in the economy. I think we're going to be bumpy, but still positive. And lastly, I would say this, Amy, and you know that whether or not we're a growth or value investor, I think investors are going to pay for consistency. And the most consistent earnings in the world are right here in the United States. And I think investors are going to pay for that consistency. Weiss, you got one? Well, I have two. First of all, who uses the word harkens back anymore? Uh, you know, it's, it's an <laughs> antiquated term. But away from that, here's my, you don't have to answer that one. That was rhetorical. Here's my question. There are really two markets you're talking about. You're talking about, about the S&P that hasn't really corrected all that much. And then there are stocks which have corrected on NASDAQ, you know, an average of 50%. So it's sort of a misstatement in saying that, hey, you know, everything seems to be okay and we're going higher. So is your recommendation, and I heard about the sectors, I don't disagree with them, but is your recommendation just buy the indices? Because buying stocks has just not been a great situation. And by the way, when you talk about rallies, I think you need more than two days of market performance to have a rally, particularly when the S&P is back where it was in September of last year. It's done nothing. So, you know, in order for your 
for your forecast to come true, we'd have to have an incredible run in the underlying stocks as well, not only the indices. I'm going to do it again. I hearken back to my very first mentor, William O'Neill, uh, 32 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> and, and he used to say, you never know when a correction is until you pass one. Uh, and we'll see over the next few days. But I've said it on this broadcast and on your network several times over the last couple of years is that the stock market is a market of stocks. I think the biggest mistake that investors are making that they're making decisions on the index level. You're exactly right. At, at the depths of the lows, we had more than 80% of the S&P 500 down more than 10% and 50% more than 20%. Yeah, if you can say that, the correction's over. I, I can say that from an from a index perspective. I think it's dangerous to buy ETFs in overall. Uh, we would much rather, uh, trying to make decisions on a passive side, Steve, we run our own portfolios that have all performed the market because we're active stock picking and we make bets. We make big positions and we have low turnover. And that's why not being reactive is paid off, especially this week. And we're going to continue to be non-reactive and stick with our process and our discipline. Brian, good to see you. It's been quite a few nice fortnights, you, but I'm, I'm glad that we re reconnected. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan Belsky of BMO, to use another antiquated term. Um, so let's get to what we're doing in this market, especially when it comes to technology. And Dr. J, I'll go to you because there is this notion, Brian had mentioned rental technology, but there is this notion, first in, first out. These names have been correcting for about a year, um, and they're showing signs of life at this point. If you take a look, for instance, at the ARK Innovation ETF, um, what do you think? I would agree, Mel, and uh, I haven't been playing Wordle like you guys, so I don't have any of those uh, fancy uh, words to describe it, uh, like Fortnite and so forth. But what I would say is uh, that many of these stocks um, certainly would be worth at least a several-week rental. Um, I think Pete was on with you guys yesterday talking about Upstart. Um, that's one of those fintech plays that, my gosh, it was you know, sub 110 yesterday, it trades to 139 today. Those are tremendous turnarounds. So to your point, Mel, when you do see that, as Amy said, for instance, you know, 70, 80 percent sell-offs, people are somewhat comfort comfortable getting into those stocks on those deep sell-offs. Um, we haven't seen those kind of deep sell-offs in Microsoft and Apple, two of the stocks that Brian was just talking about. Um, but those truly are with the reoccurring revenue that they produce, with the areas of the economy that really aren't impacted nearly as much by some of the concerns about um, the, the uh, ongoing conflict overseas, I think those are the ones you hold. I don't know that you add a lot um, to Apple or Microsoft here, but I certainly am, just like Amy, shopping around uh, for many of these stocks like Upstart, like Roblox, because I think they're more than one-day events. I think they're going to continue for several weeks after the battering that they've had, Mel. Amy, you mentioned babies being thrown out with the bathwater. What are some of those names on your list? So we're looking at Fiverr, which we own, but we think this is, uh, obviously had really good earnings relatively recently. Um, stock was up a lot and then it's come down. It's been super, super volatile, but I look at it as the leading um, leading stock in its, in its space which is um, consulting and um, um, freelance, um, matching freelancers with organizations. Uh, it's a $2.7 billion market cap at this point. Um, we think it's a, it has a lot more to go and, and a lot of upside from here. Stitch Fix is another name that we're looking at. It, um, 
and hit a 52-week low or all-time low yesterday. Um, we th it's down over 80%. We think it has a defensible franchise. We like the way that it knows its customers. Um, we think it's making a lot of good moves. Again, $1.3 billion market cap. Um, so those are just two examples. Yeah. Liz, what sectors do you like in, in this environment? Well, I'll, I'll talk to the technology question first. So, I mean, I'm not one to swing in and out of things in a month, although I acknowledge the idea of renting tech for now, and I think that that's fine for traders. I would still be waiting until after the first hike to leg back into tech. I think, again, the anticipation is going to be worse than the event, so we're likely to see a little bit more volatility up and down days in tech. Wait until after the first hike, leg back in, but back into high-quality tech. If there is such a thing as value tech, that's what I would be legging back into. And the tech that has the fundamentals to support it going forward. So when we think about what you would buy in that environment, you are buying the big cap tech names and you're buying the stuff that has growth potential but has earnings momentum behind it. You can no longer hide out in momentum tech names. So I would look at that late March, early April. Hopefully we get some of this rate hike anxiety behind us. I still like financials for the year and I like dividend payers because look, if we're going to have to wait out more volatility, you might as well get paid with a dividend while you wait. Yeah. John? Um, Mel, uh, since you were looking at specific sectors, I'll throw out two that I'm really hot on right now. And they're both tied into what's going on in Ukraine. Um, energy, I sent to Prashant yesterday, our uh, producer, um, energy and uh, fertilizers. Why fertilizers? Because Russia is one of the largest producers of that. Obviously, these sanctions, Mel, will mean that uh, they're not going to be selling into Europe or elsewhere uh, nearly as much. Most of that will instead go to China. That's going to push up food prices, unfortunately. But um, uh, nonetheless, the mosaic trade, the NTR, Nutrien, uh, Mosaic, those are stocks that I have bought and I'm holding here. Um, I think you can own those for several months here, uh, along with the energy trade, Mel, uh, both natural gas, LNG, uh, crude oil. I think you can own all of those and be somewhat aggressive on, again, selling calls like mm -hmm. Bryn Talkington and Steve Weiss and I always talk about. Be somewhat aggressive about selling calls against these positions. And you could find that you have 20, 25 percent returns without even the stocks moving. But they're going to be in demand and holding these levels and pushing higher because of the sanctions. Weiss, you know, when we talk about some of these high valuation names, we often think about sort of the arc innovation kinds of names that have already um, been in a bear, mar bear market, basically. But IBB, for instance, that's off 30% from its highs. And today it's catching a bid. And I'm wondering if you, th you think there's any value out there that's being overlooked in biotech. It's really had a very, very rough run in the past year or so. It has. It's, it's, been, uh, it's been uncharacteristic in that there's been no bounce thus far this year. And I don't, I don't recall any, and I looked at it, any year where you saw two successive down years in the IBB. Um, I do think there's some value there. Uh, a number of firms put out lists of, of, of biotech stocks that are trading near cash levels. Uh, but it's 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 where your best buying aside from Moderna, which I own uh, it, your best buying, not just others buy it, but your best buying a basket because you never know who's going to come to a trial and miss. And then the stock go down 50 percent. So 
those are also companies that are valued on on future cash flows. So in that sense, they're no different than uh, than the snowflakes or Mm -hmm. or, you know, some of the others that Kathy Wood owns. Uh, But they're much more event driven, those stocks. So you've got to be very, very, very careful going there. I mean, where I see value is under the radar stocks, at least under the radar in terms of the broad market. So I look at, as I mentioned on the show yesterday, uh, GXO, which if you outsource to GXO in your company, you'll increase your margins by two to 300 basis points. Where else are you going to get that? Uh, XPO Logistics is trading in a ridiculously low multiple. And those stocks aren't going away. As a matter of fact, when you bring back more production, as Belsky mentioned, and I agree with, to the U.S., they're going to be even more in demand, as well as Europe, because GXO is in both places. And then Volkswagen, which we didn't get a chance to talk about, and Porsche, the events happened. It's not the perfect event. It's a complete spin-out. But Porsche could add another 50 to 100 billion to the market cap. And after the initial move, it got caught in the downdraft. So uh, so I think it's a great opportunity to get in there. I actually added to VW uh, on that ridiculously low print yesterday. All right. Let's uh, talk some Fed here because Fed rate hikes still the main focus for the markets, especially in the coming weeks. Let's bring in CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. So there's another Fed guy saying 50 basis points, Steve. Yeah, there you go. And, and uh, by the way, Melissa, data this morning that showed high inflation and strong consumer spending and durable goods orders. It really supported the positions taken by Fed officials to, I don't know what you call it, march on with, a mar- with those March rate hikes or a March rate hike, at least, despite the uncertainty that surrounds the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There is still this debate, though, 25 or 50. And as Melissa said, here's what uh, Fed Governor Chris Wilder said yesterday. He weighed in, quote, if inflation and jobs and the jobs reports indicate the economy is still running exceedingly hot, a strong case can be made for a 50 basis point rate hike. Data today showed the Fed's preferred inflation gauge. It had a fresh 40-year high in January with the headline PCE number topping 6%. The core at 5.2. Several other Fed officials, they have a firm support for hiking rates. Some are at 25, a couple at 50, some not saying at all. But the outlook for rates priced into the market, it's interesting. It's pretty unchanged from where it was before the invasion began. Essentially, you still have six hikes uh, baked in here. March at 100, May at 100, June for the third hike at 93. July comes down a little bit, but still elevated 73. Then September and December, fifth and sixth hikes priced in. You'd get to somewhere in the 140s by then. 1.4% would be the funds rate. So consumer spending data was strong, though Americans dipped into their savings to make ends meet. That could bring some help in the months ahead uh, on inflation with perhaps some demand destruction. But the momentum of the economy and a belief that the Ukrainian situation is not going to slow it much, prompting Fed officials to keep rate hikes on track, Melissa. We talk, of course, squarely about the U.S. economy for the most part, Steve, but the ECB economist did release some projections about how he views uh, the what's going on in Ukraine affecting uh, GDP over there. And he said the, the sort of middle range is a 0.3 to 0.4 percent impact, negative impact on GDP. And the worst case would be a 1 percent, which seems like a lot of GDP. How much do you think this factors into into the Fed, the impact on Europe and what the ECB does? Because that sounds like maybe their first rate hike will be delayed. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting to think about it. So whatever the number is that hits Europe, something less, but something does come back on the shores in the U.S. I'm actually surprised it was that low. Uh, And it depends a little bit. I mean, people are saying, for example, like, 
had this happened in the summertime when the Ukrainian wheat was 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 flowing, it would have a different economic impact than it does right now, sort of uh, in the dead of winter. That's one aspect of it. And then again, we'll see what happens. Europeans have higher oil prices to begin with, so it's going to hurt them if they lose oil supplies. But higher prices actually have a bigger marginal impact here in the U.S. because they're relatively low. And so when they go up, it causes, you know, more 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 trouble here economically. That, that's the main route, I think, uh, Melissa. When I look at the size of the Ukrainian economy, the size of the Russian economy, neither is very large. And so the knock on effect is not going to be that large. Yeah. Weiss, you got a question for Steve. I, I do. Steve, realistically, based upon your experience as, as a Fed and interest rate observer, at what level of rates from where we are now will it really start to impact demand and then impact inflation? It's not going to be 25 bips. It's not going to be 50 bips. When is it going to be? And how long a lag is there to the rate increase to the, from the rate increase to the impact on demand and inflation? Those are great questions. And you know the famous quote, right, which is that the impact of, uh, of monetary policy, the lags are long and variable, which means it could take a long time and we're not really sure. That's probably the way to uh, uh, decipher that. Uh, look, what's interesting now, Steve, is you have impacts in the uh, system already. I'm just looking at one of my spreadsheets where I, 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 I follow how much the two-year yield and a whole bunch of other yields have changed since the Fed pivoted uh, at the end of November. And there's 100 basis points of tightening already in the economy. And where does that see an impact? You see that impact in housing, uh, although there's huge demographics. I, I don't think it's going to be a very big impact, Steve. If you think about it, we were, what, 175 going into the pandemic, and we had very fine growth. Um, I don't think it's going to be a huge demand. The real question to me, Steve, which is the one that you guys debate every day, which is the reason to tune in, is what's the valuation of the market? Economic growth, earnings, they should all be fine. We don't talk enough about the idea that the economy right now is probably accelerating on the backside of the Omicron uh, uh, wave that we had. Um, you're gonna, the, the economy is going to be fine. We have this inflation problem. But fascinatingly, consumers have been able to spend. You have 6% inflation. And you had, you know, in the, in the second quarter, in, in the fourth quarter, 6% growth on top of that. Real growth was 6 or 7%. So uh, it, it's been remarkable and it's been strong. Uh, and I think those are going to be the determinants. The real question is the valuations here. And that's beyond, well beyond my area of expertise. Steve, it's always great to speak with you. Thank you. Thanks. Steve Leesman. And the strength of the consumer is something that we talk about all the time, John. And, you know, it's interesting for instance, we heard in PayPal's uh, report that spending amongst lower income uh, consumers was lower. They did feel some sort of a headwind. So when we're thinking about the consumer and how strong the consumer is, there are pockets where the consumer is facing more headwinds because of inflation and because wage growth isn't keeping up on an inflation-adjusted basis. Yeah, and yet, Mel, we've seen um, spending at the likes of Macy's, at Farfetch even, uh, obviously more of a luxury focus there. Um, but Farfetch, uh, a 40% jump today um, in uh, shares uh, of Farfetch. I think that's showing us that perhaps the consumer isn't just wildly spending, Mel, but they're <laughs> certainly out there willing to uh, commit capital to 
whatever uh, sorts of luxury items that Farfetch is selling and to Macy's, um, that just, you know, back to their restructuring and uh, giving consumers more of what they want in that store and on the digital side as well. So I, I think the consumer stays strong, Mel. Uh, obviously, every dollar that gasoline goes up, we buy an average of 600 gallons of gas per year, those of us who have internal combustion engines. And uh, a dollar uh, here and a dollar there, yeah, it impacts the lowest earners, the lowest wage earners. But for the people in the middle, you know, is that $1,200 on a $2 jump in crude oil or in uh, gasoline really that impactful? I'd say not so much, Mel. Yep. Still ahead on the halftime report, the trades and some of today's biggest analyst calls, plus John's latest moves in unusual activity. Halftime report is back in two. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. I'm Frank Holland. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Moments ago, the European Union agreed to freeze the assets of Russian President Putin and Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov. That's according to Latvia's foreign minister. It's part of a second package of sanctions against Russia, with more said to be in the works. Russia says it is limiting access to Facebook. Russia's communications regulator accuses Facebook of censorship. This after four Kremlin-backed media outlets had their accounts labeled unreliable over their coverage of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It is not immediately clear what form of restrictions Russia has imposed on Facebook. And Pope Francis making an extraordinary plea to halt the Russian attack. The Pope made an almost unheard of visit to the Russian embassy in Rome to, quote, express his concern about the war. The move is a sign of the Pope's anger at the Russian invasion and his willingness to appeal personally for an end to it. On the news tonight, new sanctions, more pleas, but will any of it slow down Russia's attacks? That's tonight at 7 Eastern. That's the very latest. Melissa, back over to you. Frank Holland, thank you. Let's get a few of the calls of the day. And uh, first up, Tesla upgraded to an outperformer Daiwa Capital Markets, a firm saying rising oil prices could accelerate EV demand. Um, John, your long Tesla calls. So what do you what do you think about that that premise? Because that has always been the premise. Well, uh, you know, Mel, we opened basically just a dollar or so higher than where Tesla is now. And on those um, uh, Kimball Musk uh, investigation uh, news stories. Obviously, it fell, I think, $30 from there and then rallied right back. So I think overall, the Tesla bulls are thinking that uh, after the whack that has been going on uh, over and over again in Tesla for the last basically month, 
that may be in this range, in that 780 uh, to uh, $800 range, it's not a bad area to be accumulating. Obviously, to drive it back up in the face of that investigation says a little bit about uh, the, the strength or the commitment that people have. I'm still holding Tesla calls. I've written big calls against it, and I don't see anything in this, either the investigation or anything else in the market that stops Tesla from uh, continuing on its upward trend now that it's starting to resume. What was amazing is that yesterday Tesla had, what, a four-plus percent gain or so, and it was yesterday when that news of the insider trading probe from the SEC broke. And so even in the face Mm -hmm. of that, it was still able to sweep up higher um, with the broader tech sector. Um, Let's get to Wells Fargo here. Um, Actually, this is Mike Mayo from Wells Fargo, and it's a call on Goldman Sachs, reiterating his buy rating, $420 price target on Goldman. Uh, Amy, you own it. Yesterday, financials didn't do too well. Bouncing back today, what do you think? Um, we like Goldman within the financial sector. We're still underweight financials in general. But last time I was on, I talked about moving some of our position of J.P. Morgan into Goldman Sachs. And we think Goldman is the better positioned company here. Um, still has number one market share in a lot of key important markets, trading at less than 10 times earnings. Um, good management team, good positioning. So we like we like it relative to the financial universe. And, and I agree with Mike's call. It was a good note. Weiss, you own this too. I do, and I always liked Mike, and I've, of course, always liked Amy back to when we used to work together, so I agree. Goldman is just way too cheap, and the way David Solomon is re-engineering the business, going more to fee-paying business, is going to be great for him because they've got that gold-plated nameplate that will help drive business. If I could, Mel, if I could harken back to John's comments on, on <laughs> Tesla, I still, believe, I still believe the, the best. Hark, I'm hearkening back, John. Um, I still believe the best is behind them. They never had to spend a dollar advertising. Never. If you harken back to when they started, never a dollar advertising. Now they're going to have to spend. They don't have a dealer network. And there's so many choices for EVs out there that you can't expect them to continue to be the leader. Why do they have to spend? I would think that GM has to spend, that Ford has to spend, that Neo has to spend, but maybe not Tesla. Tesla does have to spend. The others are spending, and that's exactly why they do. Because they're going to have to show you why you should buy their car and search high and low, hither and there, Mel, to find a service (laughs) station because they don't have them. Versus any dealer network where you can go to an Audi. And by the way, their models are looking old already. Those little bubble cars, I mean, come on. Step up, get something new that's got styling. And I'd even take a Taycan that's that's catching fire in the Atlantic over Tesla at this point. That's a phenomenal car. All right. Uh, Coming up, John is following the action in the options market. His latest trades are next. Plus, all February, we are celebrating Black History, featuring some of our CNBC Financial Advisor Council members. Here's Lauren Williams sharing what Together We Rise means to her. I think the idea of together we rise means that everybody needs to work together, not just people of color trying to lift up people of color, but everybody in this country coming together so that we can all rise together. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. 
crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Time for unusual activity. John, what are you looking at? I'm betting that this is not going to shock you, Mel, but we're seeing unusual activity and energy plays across the board. But one that I'm going to highlight is ExxonMobil, XOM, 4.6% dividend yielder. Uh, they're buying the next week out, March 4th expiration, 80 strike calls with the stock at $77 this morning. It's moving up again. I think, again, that we're likely to see higher energy prices for at least several months here, Mel, perhaps much longer than that. And ExxonMobil is well positioned to take full advantage of that. Second one, rolled flat steel. A lot of people, when they think of cliffs, uh, think of mining and or, you know, what they do as far as getting stuff out of the ground. They're really about steel production, rolled flat steel. And we show buying at the 23 strike out in May uh, with the stock at 20. Now it's made a move in the last hour, Mel, to 21. So it's, it's on its way to 23. I like both of these trades. I'll be in the one uh, continuing with ExxonMobil through next week. And with Cliffs, I'll probably be in that for several months. All right. We've got many more trades ahead. We'll get you ready for the big earnings next week. Halftime's back right after this. A number of retailers reporting earnings next week. Target, American Eagle, Costco, Gap. Among them, um, Liz, you're bullish on the consumer. Not so much retail, though. Why? I think the consumer is strong and the consumer has continued to spend, even though there's been price increases. And if inflation relaxes later this year, there's less pressure on the consumer. And I think they'll continue to spend. However... What we've seen in some of the data at SoFi and just my gut instinct tells me that people are going to spend money less on things and stuff and more on experiences. I penned a note a while ago called We're All Millennials, and that's what I meant by that. People are going to do dining, entertainment, travel, more than things and stuff. So I think a little more tailwind behind the experiences than retail. Yeah, Amy, it also sounds like you don't necessarily like retail, but you do like the high-end consumer and high-end retail plays. Right. So we've been we own a number of the luxury names. Um, obviously, the wealth accrual in the high end has been um, unprecedented. Um, but generally speaking, retail does not do particularly well in a rising rate environment. I think the big and I agree with Liz, the consumers in good shape. It, it, um, you know, the big question in my mind for the consumer is, will we get a leverage cycle? We haven't had one in a really long time. I think, you know, paying down the debt over the last decade that we've seen has been just 
phenomenal and, and has contributed to the disinflationary environment. So the question is, if that changes, and, and the consumer certainly has the balance sheet to do that, what does that do for the overall um, inflation numbers? And, and that's something that we're watching very closely. But in general, we are looking for some newer models. I mentioned Stitch Fix earlier, um, and we're, we're not really in traditional retailers. We mentioned the uh, slew of retailers reporting next week. Dr. J, it appears you own calls in all of them. <laughs> it just about, Mel, um, because <laughs> I agree. I think the consumer is in good shape. Um, uh, I, I would uh, say that obviously Target is one of those far-fetched I've already mentioned because they topped, I think, $4.2 billion in sales, Mel, um, which has brought them to their first profitable quarter, I think, since they came public. I really like that one in particular. But if you uh, just said, you know, Costco, Target, Farfetch, yeah, all of those. Gap stores, not so much. Uh, GPS may do well, but uh, I, I still think they're struggling. So I will hold that one, but I'm not as bullish on it. All right. Well, we got to take a break here. Committee is ready to answer your questions. That's next. So email us at askhalftime at cnbc.com. Back right after this. The investment committee is answering your questions. First up is for Liz. Aiden in Illinois asks, what do you recommend for young investors? I'm in my 20s. Should I invest in an IRA, a mutual fund, or just stocks? Liz, what do you tell them? In your 20s, you have a long investment horizon. I would use an ETF, and I would use an S&P ETF here. This is a great time to buy it back down to the five-year average PE, and you've got broad exposure. And then supplement with some individual names that you really like. Set it and forget it. All right. Next one is for Amy. Uh, Jack in Detroit wants to know where you see Verizon going in the near future. What do you tell Jack? Um, I think Verizon has a place in um, portfolios. It's very cheap stock. It's not well liked by the street, so expectations are very low. It has a 5% dividend yield. I don't think it's not going to knock the lights out. It's not going to go up a ton, but it does have some upside from 5G. And so I, I generally like it. I think it's a nice defensive play, um, and it has a role in overall portfolios. All right. We got the final trades up next on the Halftime Report. Missed the show? Don't sweat it. The Halftime Report now has a podcast, market-moving interviews, call of the day, unusual activity, and, of course, Ask Halftime. Look for us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast. Time already for the final trades on the Halftime Report. Liz Young, what do you say? I say by the U.K., and you think about uh, the opportunities in Europe, it's insulated from Fed rate hikes, and you get a nice dividend yield while you're in. Amy Raskin. Um, I, I harken back to the time that I talked about this with Steve, but um, Lumina, I think it's a really well-positioned company, and um, pullback is a good opportunity. We'll get to Steve Anon, but first let's get to Dr. J. <laughs> <laughs> Mel, I'm going to hearken back to my comments on energy. Um, U.S. Silica Holdings, SLCA, big upside call buying, four quarters in a row. They've beat consensus estimates, demand through the roof. I like this one. YC? 
Man, you can tell who went to Harvard on this show, right? Well, um, with that vocabulary. Look, jobs, JLBS, it, this is an R play. Of course, there's risk the deal doesn't work, but the price is 57 and a quarter, I believe. That's a nice 10%. I do believe the deal will go through. Uh, I'd say it's about an 80% chance, so minimal risk. So I, I like that one and I own it. That does it for us on the halftime. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.